X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's April 6, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Today on your daily local news podcast, today's headlines, psychiatrist Drew Ramsey, the doctor discusses what's normal in the era of COVID-19 when nothing feels normal. And candidate for Portland City Council position four, Mingus Maps. Mingus Maps running in the same district that Chloe Udaly currently occupies and that Sam Adams is running to occupy instead. The incumbent is fundamentally driven by ideology. I am very much driven by evidence. Um, I think the incumbent is often divisive. I am a uniter. First up, today's Quick Six local rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith. It's Monday, April 6th. Oregon will be sending ventilators to New York. Governor Cuomo thanked Oregon on Saturday and saying that it hoped to be able to return the favor someday and announced that New York will receive 140 ventilators from Oregon, another 1,000 from China. Cuomo said the state would exhaust its stock of ventilators within a week, and it'll need all those ventilators if the number of critically ill patients continues to grow at the current rate. Oregon received those 140 ventilators from the Federal Emergency Management Agency at the end of March. An immediate briefing on Thursday, State Health Officer Dr. Dean Seidliger said that current modeling shows that staying at home is working, likely cutting down infections by 50 to 70 percent in Oregon. Seidlinger has said that avoiding a big spike in cases depends on people following Governor Brown's stay-at-home order. And Washington State is getting in on the act. Governor Jay Inslee announced on Sunday that the state plans to return more than 400 ventilators it received from the Strategic National Stockpile so that they can go to hard-hit states like New York. According to Washington's leader of response efforts, the state has fewer infections than anticipated, allowing it to help other states that have more immediate needs. Here are updates on regional cases. Oregon state and local health officials reported 71 new known cases of the novel coronavirus on Sunday, bringing the state's total to over 1,000, 1,070. The state now is reporting 28 known deaths from the virus. Looking at covid19.healthdata.org, really recommend that website. The projections already look better than just last week. Based on our reporting of their modeling, the University of Washington model projected 560 deaths by August as of last week, but as of Sunday night, the projection was down to 178 deaths. That assumes full social distancing through May. We also noticed, looking at those models last week, that Oregon was not projected to reach full capacity in ICU beds or ventilator usage, which puts the gift of ventilators to New York in some context. Meanwhile, Washington State has had 7,591 diagnosed cases and 310 related deaths reported as of Friday. Oregon is going to get money from FEMA for the Umatilla floods. The Federal Emergency Management Agency announced on Saturday that Oregon will receive federal help for flooding and storms in the northeastern parts of the state earlier this year. The federal government issued a disaster declaration for the state, making federal funding available for affected people in areas including... Umatilla County, and the Confederated Tribes Umatilla Indian Reservation. Umatilla County is where Pendleton and Hermiston are. For listeners of news with my dad, Umatilla County is the county where the my dad in that equation served as district attorney. The federal assistance can include grants for temporary housing, home repairs, and low-cost loans to cover uninsured property loss. Governor Kate Brown declared a state of emergency for Northeast Oregon after severe flooding, snowmelt, and landslides struck the region in early February. And the Oregon Department of Corrections has announced on Thursday that an inmate at the Sandy Am Correctional Institution in Salem has tested positive for COVID-19. 
The unidentified male is the first incarcerated person in the state to test positive for the novel coronavirus. The DOC said it received the test result on Thursday. According to their report, the inmate is in stable condition being treated at the facility, but is moving to an institution with 24-hour nursing care. Roughly 480 inmates are housed at the Sandiam facility. Incarceration increases the risk for contracting the virus. Of course, it is hard to maintain social distance in jail and prisons. On Wednesday, the department announced a staff person at the state penitentiary had tested positive. This staff member had contact with inmates and other employees. The agency has suspended visitors across the system and is testing inmates with any flu-like symptoms. Child abuse reports dropped 70 percent in a single month. With schools closed across the state, officials with Oregon's Department of Human Services are concerned about a swift decline in reports of the state's child abuse hotline. By the end of March, reports of abuse and neglect have gone down just about 70 percent compared to a month prior. While a drop in child abuse reports seems like a good thing, the concern is it's not a drop in child abuse, just a drop in reports. Most abuse and neglect reports come from people who are designated as mandatory reporters. Mandatory reporters include doctors, dentists, licensed therapists, also teachers. With kids across Oregon not in school right now, they're missing time around mandatory reporters. That is a major concern for the agency, compounded by the social isolation the coronavirus pandemic has brought to households. Biggest thing people can do is to keep in touch with neighbors, friends, and acquaintances. Whether you're texting, Zooming, phone calling, FaceTiming, or just yelling across the front yard to your next-door neighbor, we got to be together even when we're apart. The Child Abuse Hotline is open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And that number is 855-503-SAFE. That's 855-503-7233. And thank you to Arlene Schnitzer. Arlene Schnitzer, one of Portland's preeminent philanthropists for the arts, passed away on Saturday at 91 years old. Died at home of natural causes, according to the Schnitzer family. Arlene Schnitzer helped to transform the Northwest art scene in the 1960s and 1970s and championed the work of local artists. Arlene and her husband, the late Harold Schnitzer, donated more than $80 million to various causes. Thank you, Arlene. And best thoughts to all of you out there. Let's hope each of us works to leave a positive mark. We might not have an extra 80 million bucks, but we can yell across our yards. And a reminder that 7 p.m. every evening is a chance to emit your barbaric yawp, your joyful noise in thank you to all the people doing work during this dangerous time. We certainly share that thanks. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith, and you're listening to The Local. Next up, Dr. Drew Ramsey. Have you recently joked that you're not sure what day it is? Maybe regressed in your eating or exercise? Well, you're not alone. Psychiatrist Drew Ramsey, friend of the X-Ray Morning Show, is here to share his observations on how COVID-19 is impacting us and ways to stay healthy. Dr. Ramsey is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. He's an author of three books, including The Happiness Diet, and he founded the Brain Food Clinic in New York City. You can find Dr. Ramsey on social media at Drew Ramsey, MD. Here's Dr. Drew Ramsey. Hi, everyone. As we're entering the second month of COVID-19, I wanted to talk about some updates on mental health, what I'm hearing and learning from all of my patients. 
this week is my fourth week of quarantine for my patients. Many of them are now hitting seven and 10 days within their apartments or quarantined wherever they are outside of New York City. And so I'm starting to hear some themes that I wanted to share with you as you're thinking about your mental health, and the mental health of, of those that you're in quarantine with. And so I made a little list. Uh, this week, for the first time, really, I started hearing um, uh, disorientation, started a little bit as a joke, like, haha, what day is it? Uh, where Where am I? At the very beginning of a mental status exam is our orientation. Are we alert and oriented? And I've noticed this in myself, seeing patients every day. It's kind of a blur. I just like sit in this little cubicle. So staying oriented is really important, especially because you're always on your phone. You shouldn't be, but you are. And so really knowing the day, uh, what the date is, that is April the 2nd, 2020. Um, and to, in some ways, just like making your bed, kind of have that be a habit in the morning. Uh, the next thing here is, is maturity versus regression. And this is always a challenge for us as, as humans and as individuals when you, you think that when we're faced with stressors, uh, lots of things happen. Uh, our traumas, our struggles get activated. And, and in our mind, it's very important to get into that stance of choosing maturity over regression. Uh, regression is, is when we, we go back in our development. It's when we are living with our parents and feel like we're teenagers all of a sudden and are, are, you know, being nasty. I talked to a woman who is living with her parents again. And really, the session was about how to pick positivity and, and mature responses and defensives over how she was feeling, irritable, like a teenager, annoyed with her parents. And so uh, working on, in your life, picking maturity over regression. Um, ADLs, this is a simple one, it's medicine, that just means activities of daily living. Now, as that's gotten limited, and as individuals have been missing and losing their regular structure, as we're in this weird, like a lot of us caring for uh, kids um, and homeschooling and doing all these things and working, it's really strange, right? And so activities of daily living is just, you don't have that cue to take a shower every day. I've probably worn this shirt way too much, for example. Um, so making sure to shower, I, I, I talked to a number of individuals who felt really out of control. And, and, and it's very important to remind ourselves what we do have control over and to take advantage of those controls. For example, you go ahead, you can play like a little music if you want to play a little music, right? Is a good thing to be doing. Um, so activities of daily living. Sorry, I had a violinist traipsed by my video. Um, yeah, shower every day. Um, uh, make sure and start your morning gently and calmly with a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. Um, really, uh, uh uh, try and and take care of yourself in those basic ways. I know that's obvious, but I just saw it slipping this week more than I had in a number of individuals. I noticed it slipping in myself too. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go shave right after this. Uh, pasta. I, I heard a lot of pasta, and when people tell a doctor and a nutritional psychiatrist about pasta, it's it's often with like an anxious laugh, and, and it doesn't need to be that way. Um, I've been eating a lot of pasta. Uh, I, I'll, I'll share my stories. The, the pasta bowl that we had last night, which is just um, yeah, regular pasta with red sauce and a little pesto. The key to pasta, and also this applies to toast, we talk about it in the Brain Food Clinic, is it's a brain food delivery device. 
And so a lot of patients uh, and friends, I was giving kind of a pasta challenge to this week of enjoy the pasta, but how can you bump up the nutritional density of that pasta dish? If you've just been doing red sauce, can you do a pesto, right? You're getting olive oil, nuts, leafy greens, and garlics. Bam, those are four amazing foods for your brain and your health on your pasta. So uh, can you add in more veggies uh, to that red sauce? Um, shaved carrot goes really nicely, for example. So just trying to take that very carbohydrate, delicious, comforting meal of pasta and make it more brain food. One of my patients I gave an anchovy challenge to. I know that he likes anchovies and loves pasta. I said, you know, what, what can you, what can you pull off a little bit with, with some, um, anchovies in your pasta? So, um, enjoy the pasta, but use it to feed your brain and your mental health. And, and then this last one, and this last one's maybe, I don't mean to be ominous or in any way promote people not feeling secure. I just want to say it though, because it's true that coping, uh, methods are failing. Um, coping skills are failing for people in a way that, that hasn't before. And I just, I want to bring that up and talk about it because it's causing a lot of distress. The one I've heard most about is exercise, right? Either not being able to exercise or the exercise inside or the routine. Uh, isn't doing it. I talked to one of my friends who's like one of the fittest guys I know already, already super intense exercise. And he said, you know, I just can't, I can't quite get to that feeling that I used to have of it really releasing and relaxing me. Um, I've heard about a lot of people playing tons of video games and smoking too much cannabis and drinking too much. Again, those aren't the healthiest coping mechanisms, but um, in the past, those work for some individuals. They're not working now. This is why it's really important for us to talk about that and talk about, for you, what are the coping skills that you're going to use this month? Because this isolation, quarantine, and and kind of new world order is going to last for several more weeks, maybe for a couple of months. That that having a set of coping skills um, that is for this situation is very important. So I've been hearing lots of people doing great things, um, more music uh, being played. Um, a lot of people are starting to meditate. I think that's a real challenge right now to kind of empty the mind and relax. If that's working for you, amazing. If it's not, do a version of, a, of, of that kind of stillness, mind-emptying, transcendental meditation style. Think about an active meditation. Uh, the Center for Mind-Body Medicine and one of my mentors, Jim Gordon, has a lot of different meditations. Working with uh, Jim really opened my mind. They're, one of my favorites is a jumping meditation with kind of chaotic music. You just kind of keep jumping uh, for minutes, and it really does something to me. It activates my mind. It settles my mind in a way. Um, other ones are meditations really focusing on scanning your body, right? So you're not trying to just quiet and still the mind. You're trying to focus it in on where you're tense and then to breathe into that space. Or that just classic, more active mindfulness meditation of working on really focusing on your breath. And as I, as I generally uh, talk about breath, I find myself really wanting to emphasize the exhale. I fill those lungs up. I like to hold my breath in just for a beat or two. For me, feeling that kind of vibration of my heart really gets me into a still spot. And then that long exhale, the really long exhale through pursed lips. Uh, so I'm trying to 7, 10, 15 seconds. Um, counting I find very distracting in all this. So you get a lot of like five, four, two. I really like to follow my kind of um, more natural, I guess, 
lung capacity and, and the timing of that for me, but long, long exhale. So those are some examples of coping tools that, that maybe you know, maybe you use sometimes, but you haven't really embraced and, and need to get into part of your routine. Uh, uh, other coping skills, I think touch, a lot of people are really touch deprived. And so this doesn't have to be hanky panky, right? This can be a hug if you're quarantined with people. Um, you know, remembering to touch is important. And if you don't have that um, self-touch, and again, that's not just masturbation. Self-touch is really being kind to our bodies. You know, our bodies, all of our muscles, they like to be rubbed, whether it's your hand or somebody else's. Um, nutrition, I've got lots of content about that. You obviously know that that's important to me. Um, it's important, as we talked about with the pasta, just to focus on those key food categories to keep your mental health in good shape, as good as possible, because all of our mental health healths collectively are going to get challenged. So again, that little rhyme, seafood, greens, nuts and beans, and a little dark chocolate, lots of dark chocolate right now, that those are food categories to as much as possible try and emphasize. And again, don't beat yourself up in any way. Um, if you're just having a quick pasta with red sauce sometimes, or a lot of the time, the, the, the goal really isn't to stress you, but to empower you that there are lots of things that are in your control, um, that we do have control over. Mental health challenge, uh, uh, mental health will be challenged over the next couple of months. And so I wanted to uh, also just make sure that you're aware there are some really great psychiatrists on Instagram and on uh, social media. I, I try and tag them a lot and I'll tag some of them in, in this if I'm not sure I can tag IGTV. Um, but, but to keep those folks in your feed, um, uh, I've been really inspired by my friend Greg Brown. His, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Greg's always showing uh, great, he's a, a yoga instructor. Um, Pooja, who's a, a great um, uh, women's health psychiatrist. Uh, so, so those and many others. Dr. Sue Varma is doing lots of great media. So please take care of your mental health. Please use those other resources. Ask us questions. And uh, I'll be posting more soon. Take care. Up next, Mingus Maps, candidate for Portland City Council Position 4. Recorded during News With My Dad with Joe and Jefferson Smith, the discussion focuses on charter reform for City Hall, the political dynamics of the race, and making progress on hard issues. This Wednesday, our partner, the City Club of Portland, will be hosting a Portland City Council Position 4 debate. That's Wednesday, April 8th, from 6 to 7.15 p.m. Pacific Time. You can watch live or later on Portland City Club's YouTube channel. More information at pdxcityclub.org. Mingus Maps, welcome. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Who are you and why are you running? Well, uh, I'm a Democrat, I'm a dad, I'm a political scientist, and I'm a public servant. Um, I'm running for Portland City Council because, like you know, all of us, I love our city. We um, have inherited, I think, one of the great cities in America. We live in a beautiful place. Uh, Portlanders are fundamentally kind, caring, connected, and creative. But at the same time, you know, I'm concerned about the direction our city is heading in. Um, and we all know the problems. There's too much homelessness, uh, not enough affordable housing. Too often it feels like City Hall is broken. And that's because City Hall actually is broken. Um, but I'm running because I know that we can still fix it. And I think we really must. Running against Chloe Daly, Sam Adams also jumped in the race. I want to talk about some of the political dynamics sure. as we move forward. But start with that claim. You say it's broken. Mm -hmm. How how is it broken? 
Well, let's just start with our form of government. Uh, one of the things I want to do on City Council is to fundamentally reform City Hall. Uh, there are two reforms that I'm very concerned about. One is I want to change the way we elect members of City Council. Right now, you I want to make it by district. Yep. It's yeah. about time we do that. You want a strong mayor or an unelected bureaucrat? I want uh, a city manager who is responsive yeah. and responsible to city council. And the and so why would an unelected bureaucrat be better than an elected city councilor in terms of ensuring that the people of Portland have uh, accountability and have ability to influence their government? Well, a city well a city manager would work for city council right now, so that uh, I, there's not an issue of accountability there. And well, with, except it's kind of hard to fire that person, right? And, and like if I'm if I'm no, if I'm if I'm in a neighborhood trust association, trust me, it's not hard to fire that person. If, if I'm a member of a neighborhood association, right? Uh -huh. Or if you get rid of neighborhood association, yeah. we can talk about that too. Yeah. But uh, if I'm if I'm just, if I'm a citizen yep. and I want satisfaction on the water bureau, if there's a whole city manager that runs every darn thing, right. like holding that person accountable for one mistake because I have the voice of one, I have the ear of one city councilor who's my district city councilor. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I'm not all five members of city council have to come see me. Only one city councilor has to care what I think. And that one city council, even if they do really care about what I think, isn't necessarily going to have much sway with that city manager. Well, Here's my experience. I've worked in City Hall. Sure. Let me tell you what my experience was. Um, and let me tell you where I think Portland is at. Right now, the problems that the city faces are complex. Let's take homelessness. Homelessness is not just... City councils are too dumb. Uh, well, no, no, no. It's a matter of coordin coordination across uh, 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 across services. So, you know, homelessness is not a, just a matter of housing. It's also a, a mental health issue and a public safety issue. And if we want to make real progress on hard problems like that, we need to be able to coordinate services across bureaus. Right now, we can't do that. If one commissioner, say the commissioner in charge of public safety, has a different vision for, um, than the commissioner in charge of housing, it's really hard to knit together a comprehensive uh, solution to a problem like homelessness. And well, I would cities argue, are better than us because they have a city manager. I would say, well, the question is, how can Portland be better? Yeah, but but if I'm judging that, I want to sort mm -hmm. of see like uh, the old the old question is is or is Portland is Portland a neat city? So that's that's my first question, I guess. But how do you, how would you rate Portland as a city on a scale of one to ten? Uh, we have. We are a, we are a one. We have inherited like the, one of the greatest cities in America. I think that's so. True. If ten is a high, you'd give it a ten. Oh, if ten is a high, I'll give it a ten. All right. So the uh, although not the functioning of our city government, that is much closer to a three. So that's but this is interesting, right? It's the old argument of are we a, are we a ten in spite of or because of our weird form of government? And it, you say it's in spite of. Correct. What is it? And and what I'm trying to look for yep. is an exact because I see the trade off. I'm right. first of all not as convinced that vast more coordination is going to happen. I see big and bloated bureaucracy having just as hard a time uh, coordinating things as disparate offices who need to run across the hall to get parks to coordinate with public safety. Uh, that I, it, I'm not as convinced at that personally. But the uh, but so therefore I look I want to look for examples like what's sure. the city that seems to have and one of the things we score really high on right right is small d democratic engagement like we score the highest in that and I think one of the reasons we score the highest in that is the person who manages the potholes is actually a elected accountable to the people. And so that's the thing I think I think it's going to be a major trade-off. So you say it's not a trade-off, you think it's a trade-off worth making? Uh, I don't 
I don't think it's a trade-off yeah. here at all. I think it's important to have the people who are managing our programs actually be professionals and trained in how to manage, you know, whether it's streets or civic engagement or the Water Bureau. Right now we are appointing, we're essentially electing whoever we're electing and putting them in charge of billion-dollar bureaus, which they have, frankly, no background in. Um, also, clearly Portland has a fundamental coordination problem. I'll tell you a story. I used to work for the city's crime prevention program, which is in civic life. Uh, and uh, crime prevention is fundamentally uh, the city's uh, proactive arm of our public safety program, our systems. It's, you know, those folks will go out and work with neighborhoods or small businesses to help stop crime before it happens. And then we have the police department, which is in a different bureau. And I think of that as being the reactive arm of the city's uh, public safety system. What you want is your proactive and your reactive arms to work together. When I was a manager at the uh, crime prevention program, one of the things I would do was I would go to the um, police department and say, hey, can you give us data on where crime is happening? And if you do that, I'll send out my crime prevention coordinators. We'll work with those neighborhoods and we'll stop crime before it even happens. And the city's uh, police department would say, no, that is our data. That's the kind of dysfunction Portland lives with every day. It's dangerous and we can't afford to do it any longer. What was the moment that you decided to run? You were working in city government. Yep. Uh, Chloe Daly was apparently driving you nuts. And you said, that's <laughs> it. Not only am I not supporting her, I'm I, I'm throwing my, I'm stripped to the buff. <laughs> I'm, my hat is in the ring. Yep. Well, you know, I, as you mentioned, I worked uh, for the, I was a manager for the city of Portland. I help. I was the program manager for the Neighborhood Association System, which means I was basically the head bureaucrat uh, helping coordinate the 95 neighborhood associations that we have across the city. And I also had a role helping to manage the crime prevention program. Frankly, I saw a lot of things in City Hall that made me really disappointed and sad. You know, it's totally fine to... Um, have policies that you don't disagree that you don't agree with but what i often saw were policies that were disconnected from reality i saw management that was frankly often cruel and dysfunctional i found a system that wasn't dedicated to learning and during the time i was there i really thought that if i was the best manager i could be if i sort of brought evidence to folks and i tried to mediate and and move things forward in a constructive way. Things would work. Um, and that it wasn't really my experience. Uh, um, and then I thought, well, maybe the labor, uh, maybe labor unions will be able to write this process. Or maybe... Um, or maybe the human or the the HR department will write this, or maybe someone will just sue the city and fix, you know, frankly, some of the rot which is in City Hall. And one of the things I realize is there is no cavalry that it is coming to fix this problem. Yeah. The only way to fix this is an election. The way to fix this is to change leadership, and that's kind of where a lot of our problems come come from. Frankly, there are. I see two problems. Number one, there are some structural issues, like I've talked about, the need to fundamentally change our form of government. And there are leadership issues. You know, we have a leadership which, frankly, is um, unresponsive to the interest and the concerns of our city. We have a leadership that, frankly, is not engaged with trying to learn and listen. We have a leadership that is not trying to pull On people On a scale together. of 1 to 10, how good a job is the mayor doing? Five. What's he doing wrong? Um, well, 
homelessness and affordable housing are yeah. fundamentally... What should we be doing on homelessness and affordable housing? Well, I actually, I'll give the mayor credit. And even he will say this, that um, he has learned and evolved on this issue. I think he came in with a focus on trying to build more shelters, um, which is really treating a symptom as opposed to treating the causes and really getting to uh, um, real solutions for homelessness. So uh, let me tell you what I want to do. Instead of just building more shelters, I want to make systematic progress towards reducing the absolute number of people who sleep on the streets every night. What's the best way to prevent homelessness? Well, our into homelessness, it's the what number one, just prevent it in the first place. So I want to see us make a big investment in um, increasing housing assistance and rental yeah. assistance so people don't fall um, into homelessness. The money. Uh, we need to make choices, right? Right. What should we choose away from? What? Well, no, we. Can, I. Where do we? You, you tax fraud, the rich waste more. Tax, sure. Ta tax the rich more. Tax everybody more, or cut from something else. And if you just say fraud, you know, fraud, waste, and abuse, charter reform will solve everything. I would be skeptical because I don't think there's right. you know, just pennies under the couch cushions, and that we should just adopt Lars Larson's arguments and figure out everything's going to be fixed. Right. Well. Um, <laughs> In terms of raising more funds, I, I think that obviously one of the first places you would look is to do to tax folks who have a lot of resources and are not paying their fair share. I also think that literally, you know, if you take a look at the return on investment for spending dollars on uh, rental assistance versus a shelter bed, you know, rental assistance, let's say you break your foot and can't show up for your job as a waitress for two months, um, and then you're at risk of losing your home, we could kind of stabilize you with maybe $1,200. On the other hand, it probably costs us $1,200 a month to build a new shelter bed. You know, one of the reasons why our system is so expensive right now is that uh, we're actually not fundamentally reducing the input. You know, we're getting some people out, but we need to stop that. The, we need to stop people from losing their homes in the first place. The I-5 widening, Columbia River Crossing, yeah. it's, it, it's treated as different things, essentially the same thing. Yeah. Uh, making the lion's share of our state and regional transportation funding focused on highway expansions and mm -hmm. the impacts that that has uh, environmentally uh, and the impacts it has on other funding priorities. Yep. Uh, what do you think we should do about it? Um, I oppose the highway expansion, although I think we might need a new bridge. How come? Uh, I think all the evidence shows that highway expansions have, number one, are quite expensive and over the long term do very little to uh, do very little to actually reduce congestion. Um, I've also talked to traffic um, planners and engineers and they tell me consistently this bridge is a problem. We need if we had a better bridge, especially one that incorporated public transportation, uh, we would make big progress on our congestion issues. What's your greatest strength? Um, I'm a hard worker, I'm a good listener, I'm constructive, and I love Portland. What's your biggest weakness? What do you suck at? Uh, what do I suck at? Um, setting limits. I, I definitely wind up getting uh, overextended. I, I uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm way worse than you, I bet. Uh, oh, um, <laughs> I suspect we might have some things in common there. Uh, uh, but, you know, that's also why you sort of have the courage to throw your hat in the ring, uh, you know, because if I were good at setting limits, I would have said, this is way too much. And yeah. it is really a lot. Uh, but it's truly, I'm doing this because, you know, public service, especially working for a city and especially working for this particular city, is, I think, one of the highest calling 
callings that one can have. It's certainly the highest calling that I can have. You know, there's a reason why my whole career has been about local government. I think it's yeah. incredibly precious, special work. One other question I want to ask yeah. that we should have gotten into and we should get into now is what I remember about you getting in the race mm -hmm. was it was around the time of the controversy of Chloe trying to kill neighborhood associations. Yeah. And the and and some of the arguments to to get rid of neighborhood associations overlap with the arguments to change the city's form of government. And my and my critiques of both of those proposals are the same. Right. Basically, unless you give me a plan of how we're actually going to boost, I think our greatest strength as a city is not a form of government. I think it's citizen engagement. I yep. think it's we have an active, engaged citizenry. I agree. And and the decisions that we make to structure our government mm -hmm. should relate to how it promotes or demotes citizen engagement. Sure. Anything I hear that I fear demotes citizen engagement, I want to hear. All right, what are you doing on the other side? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's my same set of questions with the neighborhood associations. You, it seemed to me, were on the side of, no, let's not dump the neighborhood associations. Let's Correct. Not, let, I'm a and, champion of neighborhood associations. Yeah, and, and how do you do So the critique of neighborhood associations is that they're myopic and racist, that they're that they're just for the people who show up, and the people who show up are, and that tend to be homeowners, and homeowners and the people who show up are not representative of the citizens at large. How do you counter that critique? Well, number one, I'm a black guy. I have been to dozens and dozens of neighborhood association meetings um, over the course of my career in a bunch of different roles. I think the way that you have characterized them is actually unfair. Yeah. Um, I think Intentionally so, to be yeah, fair. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, totally. Um, um, you know, in my experience, neighborhood associations are part of the solution. They are not part of the problem. You know, your neighborhood associations are your neighborhood volunteers who will, you know, organize the graffiti cleanups and the movies in the parks and will reach out to City Hall to talk about the new PBOT plan that screws up the neighborhood. Um, does that mean that neighborhood associations are perfect or does that mean that neighborhood associations can't be better? No. But if you're the commissioner in charge of the neighborhood association system, it is sure your responsibility to help them get better. Like that's literally the job. If you have a critique as the incumbent does of the neighborhood association system, what you should be doing when you show up for work is figuring out how to help the neighborhood do a better job at outreach and how to be more relevant. You know, and if you're not doing that, I don't know why you're showing up every day. Mingus Maps, what should have we asked you that we didn't? How can, how can you learn more about my campaign? You can go to my <laughs> campaign website, website mengusmaps.com. That's M-I-N-G-U-S-M-A-P-P-S.com. You can find out more about our issues. We have some great events coming up. Uh, we're out there all day, every day. We'd love to see you. Please, this is a real grassroots campaign. I'm not taking dollars from corporations or PACs. I'm just taking dollars from real people, and I won't take any contribution over 250 bucks. You know, this is as real and grassroots as it gets, but we can only win if we have your support. So please come get a lawn sign, come to a meeting, tell your friends about Mengus Maps. Mengus Maps, your prince for taking the time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you to Drew and Emily and to Mengus for joining the local and thank you for listening, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. We'd love your feedback and story ideas. Send us an email at thelocal at xray.fm. Tweet us at xrayfm. Stay home. Stay connected. Thanks, everybody. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow.